The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're at major exhibitions in London and New York, looking at two American artists who emerged in the 1970s. Later in the podcast, our senior editor in New York, Nancy Kenny, takes a walk around the new Robert Maplethorpe exhibition at the Guggenheim in New York, with the curator Lauren Hinkson. Maplethorpe famously said that if he had been born 200 years ago, he may have been a sculptor. But he viewed photography as a very quick way to make sculpture. And you see that in the way that he stages the environments for his sitters. But first, to a special collaboration between the Royal Academy and the Royal Collection in London. cries you just heard are those of a woman about to give birth in Bill Viola's Nant Triptych, a video installation from 1992 that many regard as his masterpiece. It features three screens, on the left, the woman in labour, on the right, Bill Viola's own mother in hospital on her deathbed, and in the middle, a clothed subaqueous figure in a state of limbo. This work from the Tate's collection is now at the Royal Academy, directly opposite four works by the Renaissance master Michelangelo. His great Tade Tondo in the RA's collection, featuring the Virgin and Child and John the Baptist, and three drawings, two more depictions of the Virgin and Child, and a remarkable lamentation over the dead Christ. This is perhaps the most emblematic pairing in the Royal Academy's huge exhibition, Bill Viola, Michelangelo, Life, Death, Rebirth. One of the big questions when this exhibition was announced was whether the curators, including Martin Clayton, who's head of prints and drawings at Britain's Royal Collection, would dare to show Michelangelo and Viola together. In fact, the gallery I described is one of three rooms in which these artists, separated by 500 years and by the most ancient and the most modern media, are shown directly in comparison. Clayton's keen to stress that this is not a frankly unwise attempt to suggest that Viola is an artist on a par with Michelangelo. Instead, it aims to illuminate their common themes, and particularly the purity and intensity of the spirituality in their work. Bill Viola's unwell and not able to travel, but his wife and collaborator of 40 years, Kira Perov, is in London, and I went to the RA to speak to her. I began by asking her to take us back to 2006 and her and Viola's visit to Windsor Castle to see the Michelangelo drawings. Graham Southern, who is, uh, we've known since uh, for, for quite a number of years now, is very good friends with Martin Clayton, and he thought that maybe we would like to go and visit the Royal Collection, uh, the print room, and um, the print and drawings room, I should say. And uh, so we, uh, we arrived with our two children, uh, two boys, and uh, were treated to the most amazing experience that uh, it's still a highlight of our lives. Um, Martin had pulled some Leonardo drawings uh, that were um, trying to express chaos, uh, the chaos of tempest. And because, you know, we work a lot with water, and it was very kind of him to think of that. Um, but then he pulled uh, Michelangelo drawings, as t- some of which are actually here in the exhibition, the crucifixes especially that he created towards the end of his life when he was dealing with issues of mortality. And they were very personal drawings. You know, Martin says that he they weren't made for anybody, whereas the other pieces here that you'll see, you know, they're finished drawings and they were very often gifted to friends or, or maybe pa- uh, uh, patrons. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but these were, uh, you, you, you know, to see them six inches away without any glass uh, was extraordinary. You could see every little shading, every little pencil mark or uh, charcoal mark. And uh, the emotion that was pouring out of these just made you cry. And did it immediately prompt the idea that you might either either make work in response to these drawings or make a show where you might be shown alongside them? Uh, no, no, not immediately. Uh, Martin actually thought about it. We, we never would have suggested something like that. But in fact, uh, not that long afterwards, Martin sent a, a letter and said, perhaps we might be able to do a project together with Michelangelo's drawings. And we just about died, you know. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's taken this long to get it together. You know, Martin's very busy and we, we were very busy. Um, but now it's... And then we were offered these galleries. Um, so we had to bring... The show was actually going to be next year in the Sackler Galleries, and but now we have these galleries and it's just spectacular. I must say that the spaces in this building are absolutely perfect for to cradle this exhibition. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because you think of these, I mean, these are old galleries. They were generated before anybody even conceived of the moving image and cinema and video, etc., you, it's not, it's not a natural a, assumption that you would make. The, exactly. The, you know. But we find that there's a wonderful resonance that's um, created uh, when, you, when you place any work in a, in a space that is not uh, normally used for this kind of work. But I suppose also thinking about it, uh, when these galleries were built, they were built quite often for very grand paintings and and it seems to me that you and bill do make work with a with a, with a with a strong ambition to make big statements in the same way that many of those great paintings did well that's true there is a variety of work though some some pieces are very small little um flat panel screen pieces um and some are gigantic you'll see uh, five angels installed here i don't know if you've wondered yes, I have, yeah. but the five angels piece requires a very large room and it and it uh, the room to me feels like uh, you know i saw the exhibition that they had here a year ago the charles the first exhibition where there were tapestries on the walls yes and i'm going wow this is like this has the same kind of feeling and you're right but we're never afraid of these spaces because we know we can fill them but we also know that there's, a, there's something different that happens. Um, uh, cathedrals, or I remember one piece in Melbourne was shown in the old Melbourne jail. <laughs> and so, uh, so it, it really, uh, I re- also in, uh, in uh, Avignon, there's like amazing spaces there too. We did a, an exhibition in Villeneuve-les-Avignon in, the, in a beautiful monastery there and underground. And the pieces were actually placed in their cellars, the wine cellars. So, so that was, uh, it was a very interesting experience there too because the pieces were in stone essentially, you know, dirt. And that was really, really beautiful to show there. Does it feel risky to show your work alongside an old master? Um, we were at first very much in awe. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't feel risky. It feels quite comfortable once we started uh, working on the exhibition because the subject matter, the themes that both artists have worked with all their lives are, are similar. And in fact, that's I believe, was Martin's impulse from the beginning was to show, was to inform not only our work, but for the work to inform 
the Michelangelo's as well, because Michelangelo, uh, as Martin suggests, has largely been known as a you know Sistine Chapel, the David sculpture, you know, blah, blah, you know, really large, enormous works, uh, and um, not so much you know people would not think very much of the drawings in that sense. Um, but in fact, they probably contain more of the emotion because when when you see a preparatory, even a preparatory drawing, when you see that, you see the direct impulse behind the artist's hand. It's the artist's hand. When you see the Sistine Chapel, okay, so that's awesome and overwhelming and all the rest of it. But he didn't paint the whole thing. You know, you've got a whole you know workshop you know working on that. But but the the, the drawings are very precious because they are directly from him. And and that's where I think a lot of the uh, emotion comes from. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you work a lot with water. And I'd like to ask you about this very formative moment in Bill's life where he jumped into a lake and uh, his inflatable was lost and he, was, <laughs> he, he sunk to the bottom and, and nearly drowned. But it had a transformative effect on his life and and has affected his work ever since is that is or is it is or is that too neat well he didn't even remember that story for the longest time i think uh, um, a journalist asked him one day you know you work a lot with water did you have you have you ever had a near drowning experience <laughs> and he thought about it and he went yes <laughs> but um i don't think that there was any uh, any in his mind, no, there wasn't any concern or fear. You know, he just went un- underwater basically, and his eyes were open, and he saw this beautiful uh, landscape, underwater landscape. Um, and you know, but of course, the adults knew that eventually he will, dr- you know, they they rescued him. Um, so there wasn't any fear attached to that. But the vision of the of this watery world is something that he hadn't encountered before and I think that probably made quite a deep impression uh, so then uh, later on in life you know that kind of sense you know those things don't go away and you can't necessarily recall them immediately or you can't necessarily um, you know talk about them or, or you know acknowledge them but but they are there and like everything else that we do you know you could walk along the street in Florence and you'd be surrounded by the Renaissance and at the same time you'll reject it because you're all you want to do is turn on your video camera you know and and do avant-garde work you know <laughs> <laughs> that is an interesting thing isn't it that, that Bill in the mid-70s spent time in Florence and was surrounded by mm-hmm. Renaissance art but obviously he was then so committed to the avant-garde to, to, the, to, to modernism that he was striking out in a new direction and uh, I'm, what I'm intrigued by was that he was influenced by the spaces he spent time in where he was recording sound much more than perhaps at that stage the imagery that he saw in them Right, you know he wasn't interested in the imagery at the time but he was interested in mapping sound he had worked with David Tudor um, on rainforest projects, uh, he had uh, studied, uh, you know, electronic and contemporary music. Well, not contemporary music; it didn't exist then. Right. It, it was, it was, it was evolving at the time, and very, very interested in it. Um, but especially mapping spaces, you know, like this. Every room has a different, you know, different sound, different environment, um, and so. But also, he was always interested in what he called the background sound. And that appears in, in uh, a lot of the works. You'll hear that in um, Tristan's Ascension and Firewoman in the last room. When you go in there, you should probably record some of the sound in yeah. there. Uh, but you'll hear that. It, it's kind of the 
it's kind of a it's this it's nothing's happening or very little is happening but you know you're in a space yeah because it has a particular resonance it has a particular sound to it that you know we don't normally pay attention to those things and um but then he draws your attention to that because he he uses those sounds and then on top of that once things start moving you know he will build the sound uh, according to uh, what the, whatever the action is, but in the early days, we we literally uh, recorded the sound at the same time as recording the image, and that's pretty much what we used. One of the things I'm struck by when I'm in the videos in these installations is that the sound is, on the one hand, almost elemental, like the wind, or uh, mm-hmm. or like being underwater. But then also, it feels also very much like the the sound of the body when you put headphones on or something like that. Is, right. is that a, isn't that an intention of Bill's to, in, in, in a way, to create this duality of interior and exterior experience? Always, always. That's a very good observation, and and it depends too. What, like uh, if you slow things down, the sound usually gets slowed down as well, depending on what what it is. Uh, when you slow something down, you step away from your surrounding reality and you move into uh, an inner world which is not the one that we're usually in when we're walking to our jobs or sitting at our desks whatever we don't usually we don't we're not usually aware of our surroundings so when you come here and you're watching something or listening you're actually paying attention finally to those kinds of things and maybe even your own body sounds and maybe even allowing yourself to sit and think about something that you don't normally think about which is self-reflection basically or just reflection yeah and lastly i'd like to ask about your collaborative experience from when i've heard you talk about the work in the past it seems to me that you're very technically involved in the production of the work and that bill is the kind of ideas man who come who sits and works and researches how tell me about that experience how much is there a sort of give and take and a to and fro or do you have clearly defined roles no it's it's as as we've worked together over these many years you know it used to be that you know he'd come up with a shot list of something rather and we you know i'd figure out how to or we'd both figure out how to go and do it and you know always Always they're helping with the recordings, the sound recordings, uh, especially, and the video recordings. And, of course, we always talked about the ideas, you know. Uh, with the installation pieces, you know, he'd sit in his room for sometimes a month or so, and I'd go, okay, that's enough, because <laughs> he could do that for years. <laughs> um, uh, and then we would talk about the, the kinds of things that he would come up with, and, and I'm, I was kind of like a sounding board. You know, we would analyze or think about, or and it was very often a couple of things that just like hit me in the gut. You know, like once once I can respond to something, once I respond in that way, I'm going, okay, we've got to do that piece. <laughs> right. You know, he couldn't see that because he was like buried inside, and I could kind of see the outside of it a little bit and uh, interpret sometimes. He didn't have a clue sometimes what he was doing. Um, so in that sense, there was I felt like a little guide or something, and then you know, and then yes, it's kind of like he's used the word midwife, you know, like you know, giving birth to the, to the, and that's kind of in a way how we feel that 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 these pieces are, are children, you know, are our children in a way, um, but yeah, the ideas are his for the most part, you know. Of course, I've you know made suggestions and you know been involved in the work so much that kind of. Um, you know, I, I feel you know comfortable about doing that, and he does too. Kira, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Bill.
Bill Viola, Michelangelo, Life, Death, Rebirth is at the Royal Academy from the 26th of January to the 31st of March. You can read an interview with both Martin Clayton and Kira Perov in the January print edition of the Art Newspaper or at theartnewspaper.com. We'll be back talking about Robert Maplethorpe at the Guggenheim after this. Of all the images taken by the photographer Herbert Ponting during Captain Scott's ill-fated exhibition to the South Pole in 1910-1913, the Terra Nova at the Icefoot Cape Evans is probably the most celebrated. The huge slab of ice which dominates the foreground of the composition appears to loom over the fragile ship, serving as a metaphor for the unequal contest between man and nature. A wonderful print of the photograph, originally sold by the Fine Arts Society, appears in Bonham's Travel and Exploration Cell in early February. Ponting's adventurous approach to photography, combined with his meticulous attention to detail, influenced a generation of photographers. His work on the Polar Exhibition has never lost its capacity to excite and move us. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the Guggenheim Museum in New York has organised a year-long exhibition of photographs by Robert Maplethorpe, one of the most acclaimed yet controversial artists of the late 20th century. Titled Implicit Tensions, Maplethorpe Now, the show's conceived in two parts, starting with the one opening on Friday, which focuses on the entire length of Maplethorpe's photography career, from 1970 to 1988. The artist died in 1989 from AIDS-related complications. Our senior editor in New York, Nancy Kenny, went to the Guggenheim this week to walk through the show with Lauren Hinkson, one of the show's curators. Tell us, Lauren, how did this exhibition come about? So 2019 marks the 30th anniversary of Maplethorpe's death, and with this exhibition we're hoping to show the full range of his extraordinary uh, artistic contributions and the impact that the Robert Maplethorpe Foundation gift has had on the Guggenheim's uh, photography and exhibition program. So my co-curators and I, um, Susan Thompson, associate curator here at the Guggenheim, and our curatorial assistant, Levi Prombaum, um, we're hoping to represent the kind of nuance and complexity of Maplethorpe's art. Um, and we're, we're hoping to engage audiences who may you know, only know Maplethorpe the person and not actually his production um, and bring them in uh, to see uh, kind of the wide-ranging uh, career and subject matter that he addressed uh, with his practice. And for those that know his work well, we think that there are going to be quite a few discoveries to be made in the show, especially the early works um, that we have in our collection. Everything on view is drawn from the Guggenheim's collection, and as I said, uh, is from the Robert Maplethorpe Foundation gift, which came to us in 1993. We received some 200 works at that time, and it really catalyzed our photography uh, collecting practices here at the museum. So the themes that you'll see in the exhibition, um, uh, ranging from exploration of identity through self-portraiture to race and gender, and um, the kind of censorship of sexually explicit imagery, all of these kind of complex um, topics are are looked at within um, our broader collection. Um, Maplethorpe has really had a profound impact on the field of contemporary photography. And so uh, in the second part of uh, this exhibition program, we're going to be highlighting that impact and looking at the complex conversations that have arisen around his work. Um, several of these kind of threads in the practice from exploring identity 
uh, through self-portraiture to his representations of race and gender are reflected in works that have been acquired by the museum through our photography council. And so we really view this moment as um, an important one to tease out uh, some of these conversations and critical valences that contemporary artists have brought to Maplethorpe. So we'll have a selection of contemporary artists on view from our permanent collection uh, starting in July. And the title, Implicit Tensions, what's behind that? So Implicit Tensions uh, kind of has a twofold meaning. The first uh, relates directly to the work. Uh, when you're looking at his pictures, you see this tension uh, within the composition, uh, the lighting, the relationship that he has as the maker and uh, the sitter that he's uh, taking a picture of, whether it's a flower or a phallus or a person. Um, there is a sense of this kind of uh, compositional tension and subject matter tension. There's also a tension within um, the work and um, its kind of societal space. Um, when the works were made, um, we have the kind of gay liberation movement, we have um, the censorship and uh, culture war debates that I spoke about earlier. Um, we also have um, the rise of fine art photography uh, within the artist, artistic space where um, we're seeing photography being valued and taken seriously as an art form. And all of those things are important when viewing these works. Um, but uh, the second meaning of, of the exhibition is that, or of the title, Implicit Tensions, is that um, it relates to the second part of our uh, year-long exhibition program. So in July, a uh, second part of the show will open, uh, looking at kind of the contemporary resonances of Maplethorpe's work in contemporary photography. And one of the key works in the Guggenheim's collection that we'll be showing is a work by Glenn Ligon, and it's called Notes on the Margin of the Black Book. And in this work, uh, Ligon takes Robert Maplethorpe's Black Book, which was a publication that he made in 1986, um, and if you know Robert's uh, practice at all, he did create these books periodically where he combined his images in, in kind of a narrative storytelling. And uh, this particular book looked at the black male nude. And so Glenn Ligon uh, took that book uh, kind of as a starting point for his work and brought um, in text panels with quotes by artists, writers, um, art critics, all different kinds of voices to um, give voice to the black nudes that, that don't really have an identity, if you will, in, in the actual publication. So there's this kind of criticality that he brings to Maplethorpe's work. And one of the text panels is by the English novelist Alan Hollingshurst. And in his um, entry, he talks about the implicit tension between uh, Maplethorpe as a uh, white male photographer and his subject, the black male nude, and what that means um, for their uh, artistic production, the relationship. We're standing in front of two self-portraits, and he seems to be experimenting with different presentations of gender. In one, he's the bad boy in a leather jacket. In another, he has a feathery ha hairstyle, and he's wearing lots of makeup. Do you think he's playing to an audience or trying to convey a message here? I do, and um, it's often been said that Maplethorpe is his own favorite subject, and so perhaps he's playing um, to himself, but uh, he, he 
uh, consistently created self-portraits uh, throughout his career, um, starting with his earliest uh, Polaroids in the 1970s until his kind of final image, the death mask uh, self-portrait from 1989 that we have in this exhibition, or 1988 rather, that we have in this exhibition. And um, he was really a master of cultivating his own self-image. Um, and he used uh, his self-portraiture as a strategy that um, he could use then to kind of experiment with different modes of um, self-presentation, which is what I think we see in um, these first portraits in the exhibition. As an artist, Maplethorpe started out with constructions and collages of photographs for magazines and books. Um, you have three collages here, a black bag, green bag, and red bag, all from 1971. What does he put together here? So in these works, we see uh, Robert Maplethorpe working in collage. Uh, he went to Pratt um, to study art in the 1960s, and there he was trained as a sculptor and a painter. And he didn't really pick up photography until a little bit later. So at this moment, he is bringing together found imagery to make um, these kind of assemblages. And he noted when he was in art school that he was really inspired by uh, Joseph Cornell and Marcel Duchamp. Um, and so here we see that he's taken a found uh, potato bag, which uh, we were able to confirm with infrared photography uh, in our conservation studio. Uh, and he spray painted these bags. Uh, and then behind the screens in the center of the bags, he's uh, collaged, found imagery, uh, called from uh, gay pornography magazines. Uh, and then he's spray painted around uh, the work uh, to kind of create this object. And what's interesting here is we see um, references not only to um, his kind of growing interest in um, representation of uh, gay identity at that time, but also um, his kind of Catholic upbringing, you know, this, this um, gridded uh, uh, net almost in front of the um, pornographic images um, creates a screen, and he spoke specifically about his first experience uh, uh, going to 42nd Street uh, uh, in the 60s and seeing the kind of um, sex shops and wanting to go in but not feeling comfortable, not sure, you know, what he would find inside. Uh, there was a sense that he couldn't fulfill that desire to access those images. And so he translated uh, that feeling um, in these particular works by adding the screen or a veil um, that really references his um, experience of perhaps being in the confessional uh, during his Catholic upbringing. And we see that um, appear again and again in his practice. Uh, some of his s and uh, photographs are framed with kind of smoky mirrors or smoky glass to create a veil. And uh, some of his other pictures include actual uh, uh, kind of fencing um, in the glass so you can't see, you can't access these images. Apparently, Maplethorpe's first camera as an artist was a Polaroid model. What prompted him to begin take up photography, to begin photographing? So Maplethorpe, in 1970, was living a really bohemian life uh, at the Chelsea Hotel, and he meets artist and filmmaker Sandy Daly, who lends him a Polaroid camera. 
And he begins to kind of experiment taking his own images with it, hundreds in fact. And uh, he was at first a little suspect of the Polaroid as a medium, um, but eventually he uh, really embraced the Polaroid camera and photography in general uh, because of its immediacy. Um, he spoke about how uh, when he was working in other mediums, he had to kind of wait to see the final product. And with a Polaroid, it only took 60 seconds, and then you could see uh, the kind of fruits of your labor in creating a composition. And um, he was lucky because uh, the Pol Polaroid film at that time was quite expensive, but he received a grant from the company uh, and some free you know, film to, to do his work, thanks to uh, uh, John McKendry, who was a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and who he met um, around 1971. So he had an opportunity with the Polaroid to kind of work more freely and, and do some experimenting at this early point in his career. In 1972, Maplethorpe met the art collector and retired curator Sam Wagstaff, who became his lover and mentor. What influence did Wagstaff have on Maplethorpe? So Sam Wagstaff's um, patronage of Maplethorpe allowed him the kind of freedom and means to fully pursue his photographic work. Uh, he gifted the artist a Hasselblad camera uh, for Christmas in 1972, which kind of replaced the Polaroid camera uh, that John McKendry had given him in 1971. But both of the men kind of played a really important role for Maplethorpe uh, in his education, in the history of photography, and connecting him with other artists and curators, and also uh, potential commission subjects um, within the kind of cultural figures of New York. Um, Wagstaff was also uh, one of the first collectors to realize the importance of photography and built a renowned collection of photography that uh, Maplethorpe was able to kind of witness and uh, which now actually resides at uh, the Getty in Los Angeles. And so Maplethorpe developed an appreciation for photography as an art and as an object thanks to that relationship. And he uh, said that uh, he fully understood what photography meant when he could pick it up and hold it in his hands. And so that sense of um, the photograph as a unique thing, as a fine art object, is really solidified through that experience. And we see that reflected um, both in the way he composes his images, but also in the way uh, that he frames them and presents them publicly. Most of his subjects seem to be artists and performers. What's the dynamic between Maplethorpe and his subjects while he's photographing them? So um, I, I guess I would turn to Ken Moody, which was one of his uh, uh, subjects, frequent subjects in the 80s, in addition to the kind of artists uh, and friends and acquaintances that he met. Uh, in the 70s in New York, he also sought out uh, particular uh, sitters over and over and over again, and one of those was Ken Moody, and he talked about how um, Robert always made him feel comfortable in the studio. Uh, he 
provided a robe if he was doing a nude shoot. Um, he made him feel confident. And I think that that's interesting uh, to think about within the context of uh, the kind of photographer-sitter relationship that um, it is a give and take. Of course, Robert was always in control. Um, he was never uh, not uh, uh, directing the shoot, if you will. Um, but he, he did make his, um, his subjects feel comfortable and able to express themselves, which is something that's very specific to his portraiture, uh, that he um, translates um, a kind of intimacy in his works. I see that there's a portrait from 1976 of Patti Smith, his early lover and muse. She's sitting on the floor naked with her knees drawn up to her chest next to some radiator pipes in what looks to be an empty room. Apart from Maple Portraits, she seems to be one of his most photographed subjects, doesn't she? Yes, Patti Smith is one of Maplethorpe's uh, most photographed subjects. And uh, the two artists and collaborators met in 1967, and they were entwined from that moment and, until the artist's death uh, in 1989. And they embarked on what both have described as a kind of lifelong relationship. Um, they were lovers, they were friends, but they were also, you know, kind of truly collaborators. And um, she, Patti Smith herself has referred to Robert as uh, her kind of soul twin. And I think when we look at this image, uh, we see not only the kind of compositional and technical uh, skill of Maplethorpe, uh, as you said, um, on the left-hand side of the image is this kind of lines of radiators uh, with Patty crouched uh, against them. Her ribs are kind of tracing that same kind of line um, up her nude body. And she's only lit by the light coming from the windows uh, in the space. And it's, um, to me, an incredibly intimate um, and vulnerable po portrait of, of Patty. And you, you really see the kind of deep friendship that they shared in this image um, and that relationship between the two of them playing out um, in the way she's looking back at him taking the image of her. Um, I don't think in any other um, subject uh, you see this level of emotional intimacy. Perhaps that's just me as the curator kind of projecting my own knowledge of their, of their relationship, but... Um, I do see something here in this image that um, is not as noticeable or present in his kind of later portraits of other artists uh, in the 80s that are you know, much more staged and heroic in nature. This 1986 photograph of Andy Warhol, he seems to have what looks like a halo around his head. Where, how did the two of them meet? So Maplethorpe first met Warhol in the 1970s when he served as a staff photographer uh, at Interview Magazine, the kind of celebrity-studded magazine um, of that era, still in publication today. And uh, this portrait imagines him as a kind of religious icon with, as you said, a halo of light around his head. Um, and so you see in this um, portrait Maplethorpe uh, connecting himself as a younger artist to, um, to the kind of celebrity of Warhol. Um, and uh, unlike, though, I think Warhol's images of um, kind of uh, commodified celebrity, Maplethorpe conceives his portraiture as capturing 
you know, real genuine expressions of his sitter's personalities. And so when you look at the center of this image and you gaze into Andy Warhol's eyes, you feel like you're getting to know him uh, personally. It's a very powerful and direct image um, with this kind of tondo of light around his head. And um, I think that this, uh, this image also exemplifies the way in which Maplethorpe used his connections to artists and figures within the artistic community to build his own network. As I mentioned, he's a, he was a very savvy artist in that way, uh, aware of, of how he would need to uh, propel his career forward through these relationships. Well, Warhol apparently did a portrait of Maplethorpe as well, didn't he? He did, yes. An incredible uh, a series of silk screens, actually. Um, similarly, uh, shoulder-up uh, headshots of, of Maplethorpe, uh, but in motion. Um, which is an interesting way to represent the artist and um, one that we kind of nod to uh, with the self-portrait that we've hung next to Andy Warhol in this part of the exhibition where we see Robert in motion kind of looking back at his idol and mentor uh, to his left. By the start of the 80s, he had apparently turned his focus to naked black men, uh, some of whom he had sexual relationships with, uh, the men seem more like aesthetic objects than human subjects. Is that problematic for you? So in this work called Ehito, which is named after the sitter, uh, we see this kind of richly detailed look at uh, Ehito's body. He uh, references, Maplethorpe in taking this image, references a recurring image that's found in 19th century painting and photography. Um, in which a nude male subject uh, has his knees pulled to, pulled to his chest and his head bowed, um, and he's positioned on a pedestal um, as if his body were a sculptural object. And specifically, Maplethorpe uh, was looking at a fo photograph by uh, Willem van Gloden uh, of a white subject. Uh, but here he's restaged that trope with a black model, and that really does activate a complex set of associations and um, can be viewed by some as problematic. Um, the multiple perspectives uh, kind of recall this historical pseudoscientific practices of perhaps indexing racial difference, um, while the model's kind of uh, place on this pedestal evokes, you know, the kind of commodification of black bodies during slavery. And so this kind of study of Ikito, I think, is truly challenging. And in the context of the period today, uh, it raises fraught relationships uh, between the adoration, surveillance, and uh, subjugation of black male bodies in American society. Uh, so it is indeed a powerful, powerful image. Was Maplethorpe immersed in Greek and Roman art? Because some of these compositions have a formality to them. They looked as though they could be sculpted out of marble. So Maplethorpe uh, famously said that if he had been born 100 or 200 years ago, he may have been a sculptor. <laughs> and, um, uh, but he viewed photography as a very quick way to make sculpture. And you see that in the way that he stages the environments for his sitters. Um, his approach to picturing the human form 
kind of reflects this keen interest in uh, classical Greek and Roman statuary. And he spoke about specifically um, how uh, the black male nude uh, acted like bronze to him in reproduction. Um, so that, that reference is definitely there. And um, it also uh, ties through uh, the practice more fully in his kind of obsession with perfection and the idealization of the human form uh, throughout his practice uh, that he translates to many different subjects, um, whether it's flesh or... Uh, or a, the petal of a flower, um, that kind of pursuit of perfection is always there. Later we have the sex pictures, a whole body of work focused on the gay S&M community. For example, there's this S&M scene with two men named Dominic and Elliot from 1979. One is nude and in chains, hanging upside down with his arms outstretched and cuffed, and the other grabs the first man's testicles. The images seem relatively unflinching. Was it his intention to shock? So Mablethorpe created these images in the 70s and 80s, and he also produced a series of 13 works as part of his ex-portfolio on S&M practitioners. Uh, in Dominic and Elliot, which we're looking at, um, we can see this kind of consensual sexual relationship invested with the dynamics of domination and submission. The two men are posed frontally and meet the camera and Robert's eye as is typical in a traditional portrait. And the image suggests an association between the sadomasochistic desires of the subjects and religious imagery of pain and ecstasy. And Mablethorpe said that for him, S&M means sex and magic, not sadomasochism. Um, and so yes, uh, these images of this community are unflinching. Um, he approaches the subject in the same way as he approaches a flower or a portrait commission. Um, but I can't speak necessarily to his intention to shock um, other than to say that he doesn't like that particular word. Um, he said that he was looking for the unexpected um, in things that he had never seen before and um, he felt an obligation as, as kind of part of that community to take pictures um, of them. And so I think in this image and others uh, from uh, this series and this theme, uh, we see how Robert is confident in his mastery of the medium of photography and the kind of formal structure uh, of his compositions that um, he can take it to any subject, however extreme, and essentially cast it within the highest traditions of art. Um, he creates a space where even you know the most extreme uh, sexual uh, subculture um, and acts uh, can be made into fine art. He seems to have been not just an observer, but an active participant in these sexual encounters. Am I right? Yes. Um, Robert was uh, a participant with, within this community, and in the 1970s, he really cultivated that image. Um, Patti Smith uh, noted in her memoir that Robert was not a voyeur, uh, that he was authentically involved um, in the work that kind of came out of uh, his S&M pictures. And he took several uh, self-portraits in the early 1970s, um, exploring his own desire 
and arousal. Um, and we see that in his self-portrait with Bullwhip, that he's looking back at us with this kind of defiant gaze. Um, even though he's in this vulnerable moment, he's projecting an image of power and control, which is, I think, an interesting aspect of, of his images of himself within this community. Then there's the floral still lifes like this one, Calla Lily from 1986. Are they sexual as well, would you say? Uh, so that's an interesting question because Maplethorpe actually produced uh, his floral still lives at the same moment that he was producing his S&M pictures as part of the X, Y, and Z portfolio. X were the S&M images, Y were the floral images, and Z were the black nude images. And so um, in this part of the gallery, we've actually paired uh, the floral imagery with some works from the X, Y, and Z portfolios to make uh, just that point, that um, Maplethorpe was bringing his kind of characteristic visual aesthetic and controlled compositional style to both subjects. Um, he said uh, that he didn't um, uh, have a you know, different approach, whether it was a flower or a cock, it's the same thing. It's my vision, he said, um, that kind of pursuit uh, of perfection and form. And so while some critics and collectors and even gallerists have said that the you know, kind of tastefully elegant flowers are intended to appeal to collectors put off by the more explicit images, um, his floral portraits, in fact, are not entirely innocuous. Um, they uh, present their subjects as kind of phallic stand-ins, if you will, and they're suffused with a kind of overt sensuality and latent desire. Uh, there's this kind of implicit um, or explicit tension within the work uh, itself uh, when we look at the floral uh, pieces because they're very fragile, um, yet kind of standing at attention uh, in the center of the composition. So 1986, um, in September of that year, Maplethorpe received an AIDS diagnosis, didn't he? Which must have been crushing. How does he focus his energy after that? So he was cognizant of his limited time following the 1986 diagnosis, and he worked to safeguard his legacy in the final years of his artistic practice. So he prepared for two uh, retrospective exhibitions. He established the Robert Maplethorpe Foundation to manage his estate um, and support the medium of photography and arts institutions. And um, they also fund HIV and AIDS medical research. So he was very aware of, of what his legacy would be with that diagnosis. We're standing in front of a 1988 self-portrait in which Maplethorpe appears shockingly gaunt as he sits there gripping a walking cane that's topped by a skull. He would die soon afterwards in early 89, right, from AIDS-related complications. Why do you think he chose to depict himself that way? I think that despite his weakened condition, that the image shows uh, his confident expression and firm grasp um, on the cane, you know, kind of exuding this characteristic sense of control and mastery of all things, even death. Uh, that he chose to represent himself in this really haunting manner, kind of holding this overtly morbid symbol of death, I think speaks to an awareness and uh, perhaps acceptance of his own mortality at the end of his life. Yeah. The year he died, in June 1989, 
because of an uproar precipitated by a U.S. Senator, Jesse Helms, over the explicit content, the Corcoran Gallery in Washington canceled a full-scale Maplethorpe show that was due to make a stop at the museum. The show also led to calls to defund the NEA, which partly funded the exhibition. Three decades later, how do these controversies strike you now? I think that these attacks on Maplethorpe's work uh, both raised his profile. Uh, he really became a household name uh, at that time, um, but to some extent limited the kind of public discussion around his art. Today, um, perhaps the challenge of Maplethorpe's work is that the artist may be more well-known than his actual work. And so contemporary audiences may associate Maplethorpe with S&M or censorship, and I think the full range of what he's produced is going to be a real revelation to people uh, when they see the show now. From a historical perspective, of course, any presentation of Maplethorpe's photographs has to engage with censorship and the 1990 exhibitions and the controversy that erupted at the time, but it's only one aspect of Maplethorpe's work and his legacy. And so we're hoping to kind of show a more complete and complicated view of his practice that pushes the photographer's work uh, beyond these kind of past controversies and into the moment we're, we're living in now. And we look forward to, I think, engaging audiences, both young and old, in uh, uh, how they view this work in the world that we're living in today. I think it's a powerful moment to look at Robert Maplethorpe. Well, thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Implicit Tensions, Maplethorpe Now, is at the Guggenheim in New York until the 10th of July. And that's all for this week. Please do subscribe if you haven't already, and you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. And you can also find the Art Newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, of course. The producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Machowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Additional recording this week was done by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. Thanks to Kira and to Nancy and Lauren, and thank you for listening. See you next week. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.